0: Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Friday the 16th of October. Today my guests in the pod are columnist Seamus Milne and Jessica Asato from the new labour pressure group, Progress. You'll hear their views on a number of stories in the news today, including the biggest review of primary education for 40 years, which calls for the scrapping of SATS tests, a new curriculum
1: and delaying the formal school starting age to six. We are arguing that children have an entitlement to a broad, rich curriculum which covers far more than the SATs cover. And a filmmaker's scam exposes how far tabloids will go
2: to get stories about celebrities. The reporter from The People talked quite interestingly about the Press Complaints Commission. So she said that uh, he didn't need to really worry about uh, a reprimand from the Press Complaints Commission because editors don't really take it seriously. It's just uh, a slap on the wrist.
3: Guardian Daily with John Dennis. On Guardian.co.uk
0: Well, I'm with uh, Jessica Asato, Acting Director of the new Labour Pressure Group Progress. Hello, Jessica. Hi. Welcome to The Guardian. Thanks
3: very much.
0: And an old hand at The Guardian, I think it's safe to say, Seamus. Seamus Milne. I'll take that on the chin. From the comment desk. Welcome, (laughs) Seamus. Um, Well, we've got quite a lot to get through. First of all, let's talk about primary schools. The Cambridge Review of Primary Education is published today. It's the biggest review of primary schools for 40 years, more than three years in the making. And it's involved more than 70 academics and surveys of teachers
1: across the country. The head of the review is Professor Robin Alexander. It's our judgement, looking at across all our evidence, and I won't go into all the detail, that primary schools are under pressure because of because of 20 years of non-stop reform, but they are, as we say, in good heart, highly valued by the communities, highly valued by parents and children, giving children a point of stability in a world which is changing and uncertain, and clear, a clear framework of values to work in. They are performing well in terms of the, the quality of learning. Now, there are questions about standards, there are questions about the unevenness of the provision. There is clearly room for improvement. In a large complex system like ours, in a, in a complex country, it couldn't be otherwise. But the general picture is is a good one. You've called for the scrapping of SAT tests. Why is that? We don't think they're fit for purpose, to use that familiar phrase. We are arguing that children have an entitlement to a broad, rich curriculum which covers far more than the SATs cover. And it's not right, we think, to assume that testing in the SATs will give a fix on pupils' learning overall. It doesn't. You can't treat them as a proxy. In addition, there are questions about the, or concerns about the adverse impacts of the SATs on the rest of the curriculum, and indeed on children and teachers.
0: You've raised questions about the system of having one teacher teaching a a class, um, something that's been in place for more than 100 years. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about
1: that and and what you think um, could go in its place? Yes, we've called for a full staffing review. The work of primary schools has expanded enormously since the class teacher system was brought in in the 19th century. And it's brought in, not for educational reasons, but simply because it was the cheapest way to do it. And since then, that's the basis on which primary schools have been both staffed and critically funded. We want a full staffing review which sets out the range of tasks in the curriculum, in the classroom, outside the classroom, within the community that schools have to do. And we would like staffing to be freed up so that uh, that schools do have specialist expertise available across the curriculum and can... deploy it, not just to support teachers who lack confidence, but also in some cases to go in and actually do specialist teaching. Specialist teaching would cost more money? Yep. Specialist teaching would cost more money, and, and at the present time there is no money. Uh, we are arguing that as one uh, source, which is not that modest, that uh, the trend towards greater and greater centralization and central prescription and micromanagement should be reversed and therefore that there should be a, nas- uh, a, a reduction in national infrastructure, the national strategies should be wound up, uh, and that the savings from reducing national infrastructure, which would mean you know pe- the number of people working in the central agencies, uh, should be funneled down to schools. But it could be argued that even that's not going to generate the, the funding which is necessary for uh, improving the, the depth and range of primary school staffing to the extent which is necessary. Uh, in which case this is a long-term issue, but it mustn't be allowed to go away.
0: Professor Robin Alexander, author of the Cambridge Review of Primary Education. Well, I'm with Seamus Mill and Jessica Asato. Jessica, do you think that Labour has interfered too much in the classroom?
3: Well I think the report itself shows that actually there has been huge improvement in primary school education uh, and that means that to some extent Labour's plans have definitely worked particularly the added investment over the last 10 years we've seen uh, real uh, sort of increases in resources and I think that teachers and parents and students recognise that but also we have learnt through the last 12 years of being in government and it is true that we have tried some things from the top and they haven't always worked which is why there does obviously need to be a change from target driven literacy and numeracy hours to much more personalized learning which is down to teachers working with individual pupils to their strengths and I think that uh, the report author is absolutely right to pull out the, the necessity for government not necessarily to stop playing an active role because at the end of the day it's taxpayers money and you know, we need to make sure that schools are accountable to taxpayers payers. But I think the idea that we can simply pull one lever and it will work in the classroom the next day is is definitely out of touch.
4: Seamus? Well, I'd agree. I mean, there, there have been, you know, there has been very substantial extra money gone into education and in primary schools. And that's been very positive. Um, some of the targets were very crude. And anyone who had children in primary school during the, the last period of government, as I have, knows how that can have, that has been very ineffective as well as in some ways in some places effective but i think the idea that government shouldn't have an overall um control about what's going on in public in the public education system is pretty absurd and i mean one of the worries i would have about the um the direction the Tories want to go in and which new labor went in for at least part of the time of the last over the last 12 years has been by giving more and more power to head teachers in uh, in individual schools, individual primary schools, sometimes that's fine when the head teacher good. Um, but the system of accountability for that, in my experience, just is not strong enough. You know, neither for parents, teachers, or counsellors, and the governing bodies that that should be holding t- head teachers to account are just not really able to do that. So the Tories plan to give more and more uh, freedom to state-funded schools to stand alone and do their own thing. And I think that will often be very problematic in real life.
0: One of the interesting things that Robin Alexander says is uh, he he doesn't deny that uh, there's such a thing as broken Britain, but he he rather sort of reframes it in terms of the undeniable fact that uh, we live in a very unequal society. And he talks about the detrimental effect that poverty has on children.
4: Well, I mean, one of the, the tragedies of the New Labour era has been that despite the fact that they have taken some strong action to redistribute income, mainly from the sort of middle or upper middle part of society to some of the lower income parts of society, that actually inequality has increased overall during New Labour's period in government. I think it would have been much worse if they hadn't done those things, and certainly would have been much worse if... The Tory uh, government of the previous period had continued because its record was atrocious. Uh, but, I mean, it is a, a tragedy of that period. And I think we're living with, with the consequences of that now.
0: Jessica, David Cameron does talk about inequality, which I suppose is progress of a, of a sort. I mean, what do you think about the Tories uh, on, on inequality? Do you think they're serious about wanting to tackle it?
3: Well, they face two ways, you know, in the opposite direction, don't they? I mean, on the one hand, uh, they talk about poverty as if it's a new discovery in this country, and Ian Duncan Smith uh, puts out reports saying, "Isn't it dreadful?" Uh, But then you get get other people like Osborne who say their first immediate action on entering government, if they do, will be to completely cut back public services. We know that the only way of beating poverty is by working with people and heavily investing in them. And that is what Labour has tried to do over the last 12 years. I think that there's obviously more that we could have done and it is a real shame that inequality has grown. But let's remember that absolute poverty has really been tackled and while there's always more that we can do, I think that we know that we have got a good strong record and the Tories would would basically, you know, they, they, it's a PR exercise for them. They know that the more they speak about, you know, progressive issues, the public hear it, but they won't ever see the reality until, unfortunately, the Tories get into power.
4: I think that's an important point that that you know, the the sentiment among the public. Is not, uh, it's not, there's not a right-wing climate in Britain at the moment. I mean, the centre of gravity in public opinion, if you look at uh, opinion polling, uh, is not uh, where the Tory party is at all. And so I think you know, the fact that Cameron and Osborne feel they have to make this appeal on poverty and inequality is a very significant fact and actually opens up uh, opportunities for the other parties if they, if they were able to take it.
0: Um, one person who, who doesn't uh, suffer from poverty is Conservative MP David Wilshire. He's facing calls for his resignation after being accused of using his Commons expenses to pay more than £100,000 to his own company. In the Commons yesterday, uh, in answer to a question from Douglas Hogg, he's the Tory who claimed for the cost of cleaning his moat, Harriet Harman, L- Deputy Leader of Labour, of course, said that we have to judge things by the rules and standards that are obtained at the time. To do anything else would be arbitrary. Now, this does appear to contradict what Gordon Brown's been saying, is that it's okay for Sir Thomas Legg, who's been c- conducting this review of expenses, to um, retrospectively um, tell MPs to pay up. Seamus, there's a bit of confusion among Labour um, over Over this. Well, it's, a,
4: it's just a disastrous mess, and, and Labour's being hit particularly badly by it, both because it's the governing party, because I think that the, the agenda, the political agenda, had started to shift a bit Labour's way after the Tory cuts programme and the Tory conference had started to highlight some things that are actually not very popular with the public. And this revival of the expenses scandal is is knocking all that out of the way. And and what Gordon Brown had tried to do by setting up these inquiries, encouraging these inquiries to be set up, was to try and kick this business into touch as quickly as possible. It hasn't worked at all. It's exploded again. Um, And, you know, of course, the MPs have a perfectly legitimate point that they were, they were claiming and they had these expenses signed off at the time. But, you know, given the public anger over what was revealed, uh, it's not surprising that this has happened. And uh, I think Leg has made a, a dog's breakfast of the matter. And, and no doubt Kelly, who's the next report coming, will do as well. <laughs> Jessica, you've been uh, critical of the way Labour's handled this.
3: I think so. And particularly from a grassroots perspective, we don't often hear the voices of ordinary Labour Party members who at the end of the day are going to be the ones who get on the doorstep to campaign for some of these MPs who are complaining so bitterly about their treatment at the hands of the the public and the media. Um, But actually, you know, there was a a solution that could have actually helped to wrap this up before recess, uh, which was to allow local party constituencies to have a say over the reselection of their MP. And I think that that could have uh, at least given the public some signal that the party was willing to you know either reselect the MP or open the door to, to new candidates so we could have started afresh and had we had that debate then, rather than as always seems, we give it to some independent reviewer who goes off, spends a long time looking at things, and the situation has never never made any better. I think that leg would have been you're much better off using a, a kind of citizens' convention or jury to help him come to uh, a reasonable decision about you know what should be paid back and what should not. The public, at the end of the day, do not want their MPs not to receive any money at all. They realise that they do do an important job, but what they cannot stand are MPs who go around uh, you know sort of sobbing into their handkerchiefs and saying, "Oh why, oh why is this so dreadful?" The fact is, they've brought it on themselves. They had the chance to actually have proper salary reviews. They didn't take it, and you know, this is the mess they're in. It's just a shame that Harriet Harman didn't sort it out earlier.
0: Seamus, you've written that the expenses scandal, uh, the, the people who will ultimately pay the price for this are the rest of the country.
4: Well, yeah, I think it, it did. It has encouraged a sort of anti-politics climate, which is... Um, which, in the end, plays into uh, you know a, a right-wing agenda, I would say, and uh, so that's why that you know it would have been far better if it had been much more quickly handled. I think Jessica's right that um, opening up the local party democracy to you know get a grip on some of these candidates would have been a, a one good step to have taken. I mean, it's particularly bizarre that Leg has concentrated so much on cleaning. Uh, and uh, and other uh, household expenses missing the really big picture, which is the huge amounts of money that were gained by people through flipping their houses and claiming vast amounts of mortgage um, interest uh, payments, including... The leader of the Tory Party, David Cameron. Uh, now, the way he's justified that, I find quite bizarre. But I mean, you know, it's it's an absurdity because that was the real fiddle, the biggest fiddle.
0: Well, uh, another group of people that uh, the country has been very angry with, especially over the last year, are uh, the city bankers, of course. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, it looks like city bonuses are back. The major U.S. banks with big operations in London, uh, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, among them, reporting massive third-quarter profits this week. City Minister Lord Minor. On Wednesday, told investment bankers to to demonstrate restraint on bonuses, but uh, we don't uh, really expect that to happen, do we, Seamus?
4: No, I mean it's this is a, a I mean a, a complete absurdity. You know, we've got a situation where the American and British governments have spent hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds, and, uh, thousands of billions, trillions of pounds and dollars. Bailing out the banks, keeping them afloat through guarantees, investments, taking stakes in the in the case of big British banks, part nationalising them, and, or, and also some American banks, and yet we have a situation where the profits that are being made by these banks have been pumped up by these huge injections of public money, and yet the bankers are still taking the bonuses and the huge salaries and the huge profits, partly because of of the lack of competition that's resulted from the crash, but mainly because of this uh, public money that's gone in. And neither government, neither the Obama administration uh, nor the Brown government have been prepared to take the action to get a grip on this situation because they fear the city interests, in my opinion, uh, even though that would be overwhelmingly popular with the public. Jessica...
3: Well, look, I don't think that we should uh, necessarily put uh, at risk the fact that things do seem to be getting back to normal. What we just don't want is that the big bonuses get back to normal. And so I would, I think there's, there is sort of a twin track here, which is those banks which are under state ownership... I think that it would be absolutely outrageous for the government not to try and do something about remuneration in them because it is taxpayers' money. Those banks in the private sector, I don't think there is very much the government can do to stop the bonuses being paid, which is right. Why I think you know Lord Miners should be saying this is a moral issue, but you know we can't interfere. I think as a government in in the operating practices of of private sector companies. But
0: J P Morgan and Goldman Sachs wouldn't be experiencing these big profits if the government's hadn't bailed out AIG which was one of the companies in trouble that Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan had investments in
3: Absolutely but we have to we have to sort of understand that we want these banks to be profitable and we do want these organizations to to start getting back into a situation where they're experiencing growth and and therefore paying in corporation tax. So I I think, you know, we've got to be careful. We can't just sort of say, because we've helped to to bail them out, they're not allowed to to basically grow and, and, you know, make profit again. I do think, however, that uh, particularly for the state-owned banks and and enterprises, those should be shown, you know, a greater degree of, of restraint when it comes to, bonuses and remuneration, and I would like to see the government doing more on it.
4: Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, I think that the, the, the problem is, first of all, we don't want the banks to get back to normal, as Jessica says, because normality, i.e. hands-off approach to banking and the financial system, was precisely one of the key factors that led to the crash and the huge loss of wealth that has taken place across the world and in Britain as a result of that. And the second thing is that the way that profitability is being rebuilt in, these, in the banking system at the moment is, is not by you know, uh, lending uh, to businesses and customers in a way that would help the recovery, but the very opposite, rebuilding their balance sheets. And you know, what is essential uh, is that you know, lending in the economy is boosted and driven up by government intervention and unfortunately even in the state part state-owned banks that's not happening Uh, and the profitability is coming from from the opposite from them rebuilding their balance sheets so I don't think there's the problem is is too is too much intervention there isn't enough intervention and the government should be using its stakes and the fact that it's underpinning the entire financial system to drive up that lending and boost the recovery and I think the only reason they're not is that they're fearful of city interests and their influence.
3: I think that it's more that we're fearful that uh, by over-interfering in the market such a delicate time, we could actually tip them backwards. As I say, I don't, I don't think this is a, a black and white issue. It's not simply one of, of you know, uh, the the state stepping in and, and saying to you know a banker, look, you're not allowed that bonus because we helped to, to bail out the economy. I think you know designing regulation that's going to be fit for the next 10 or 20 years is not going to happen overnight. It needs to happen. But in, in this time, when we really need to see green shoots, we need to see the recession coming to an end. I think it would be really foolhardy to jeopardise that just because we're very angry, quite rightly, at what the bank has got us into.
4: But actually, it's not, it's not the bonuses that are the most important issue. The most important issue is that they're not the banks aren't lending. And that's why there is, the interference is needed, why it's necessar- necessary to drive on the recovery, and precisely to encourage those green shoots that Jessica's talking about.
0: Well, uh, regulation has um, been in the spotlight in the city. It's also been in the spotlight in the media this week. The Guardian's published a second clip from the documentary film Star Suckers. We heard about the first one yesterday in the podcast. Uh, this film's directed by Chris Atkins, and in this second clip, um, Atkins tries to establish how far tabloid journalists will go. Uh, one journalist in this second clip is filmed laughing about the the Press Complaints Commission, uh, and the fact that it's actually run by newspaper
4: editors.
3: You get caught by the PCC, but
4: there's no money. Oh, really?
3: Yeah, it's a really odd situation.
4: So slap on the wrist?
3: Yeah. And the PCC is run oh, by a newspaper editors. Really? Yeah, it's like self-regulated. Right, of
2: course, I remember
1: reading The,
0: the Guardian's Paul Lewis has the details.
2: In this section of their film, which is kind of the juiciest really, they set up another hoax. This time they phoned up four Sunday newspapers, uh, tabloids, and said that um, the director of the film said that he had an ex-girlfriend who worked as an administrative nurse in a cosmetic surgery clinic in London. And that she had a number of high-profile celebrities who'd come into the clinic for surgery or for consultations and she was willing to sell this information and did the newspaper's you know, want to enter into negotiations about that. Three of those newspapers, um, the News of the World, Sunday Mirror and the People, agreed to meet with him, and then he filmed not only the telephone conversations, but secretly with undercover cameras, filmed those meetings as well. And I should add, the Sunday Express said absolutely no way. They called it a breach of medical trust. They said it was against the Press Complaints Commission charter and, um, yeah, would be, you know, essentially unethical, both on her part, the the administrative nurse, who of course didn't exist, and on the part of the newspaper.
4: Hi, I wonder if there's someone I could speak to about a potential quite sensitive celebrity story. Basically, it's not me, it's a, it's a friend of mine. She works in a, uh, a, a cosmetic surgery clinic. Right. I've been on her for years saying, that like, you can make a fortune out of some of the things you know. And she, yeah. She's an ex-girlfriend, basically. And anyway, she's interested, so she's asked me to sort of make some discreet inquiries. Right, I think we find it very difficult because under the Press
0: Complaints Commission Charter, You cannot go into people's health issues. And when we see these conversations being filmed, uh, sort of clandestine uh, filming of these conversations with tabloid journalists, um, what do they say?
2: Well, we should go through them individually if we've got time very quickly because I think they say different things. The Sunday Mirror uh, reporter goes the furthest. He steers the conversation onto the question of documents he says is there a document that would back this up and that's of course when you get into really tricky territory because you know these documents would be protected under the data protection act although there is a public interest argument for some publication of some stories so he talks about documents and then he offers around three thousand pounds for stories about individual celebrities that he hears about the other thing about the sunday mirror reporter actually is that he at the end of the conversation, said, see if your ex-girlfriend, who's an administrative nurse, can get a document on everything at the clinic. So he's essentially saying, you know, get everything you can from me, from this, you know, this private medical information from this clinic. The reporter from The People talked quite interestingly about the Press Complaints Commission. So she said to Atkins that uh, he didn't need to really worry about a a reprimand from the Press Complaints Commission because editors don't really take it seriously. It's just a a slap on the wrist. And she kind of joked and began laughing and said that actually the Press Complaints Commission is run by editors. Uh, And the News of the World reporter, I think, was the most cautious and the most hesitant. She said that this was a legal grey area, uh, that she had to be careful when dealing with this kind of medical information. She again said that there was a public interest in some circumstances in which they would run such types of stories. Um, and she said for a celebrity story, a celebrity exclusive can earn, can fetch up to £80,000 if it's run over several weeks.
0: Um, Seamus, is the Press Complaints Commission up to the job?
4: No, not at all. I mean, it's a complete scam. I mean, it's a it, it's a, a fix-up by the um, the newspaper proprietors and the media owners, um, and they run it to suit themselves. And there needs to be a real accountability of the whole media, not just the uh, the broadcasting system, really, which is a, a, the situation at present. And uh, uh, far from a, a squeeze-on on freedom of the press it would act, could actually encourage it if it was done in the right way but the PCC is not the way to do it.
3: Absolutely at a time when you know we've got the expenses crisis in parliament and a new independent regulator has been proposed there so it is absurd that in you know this day and age we have essentially an editor's club in the same way as you know there was obviously a Westminster parliamentarians club regulating their own affairs and I think that uh, what this shows is something that we've all known for a long time which is that you know, given the pressures that exist on journalists to find stories, they will take, you know, what they're given. And it's just not, it's not good enough, I think, for a public which demands to have independent news that they can rely on, that, you, that you've got people who'll just take any old story.
0: Isn't there a problem about re- um, regulation is that um, politicians don't want to regulate the media because um, they're too scared of them?
3: well, they should stop being scared and remember that this is about acting in the public interest. We're very proud of the fact we do have a free and independent press in this country, but we'll start to chip away at that if people do not believe what they read in the papers because they think that journalists are simply taking whatever story they're given without doing the proper analysis of you know, whether the story is true and whether they've checked their facts. It is in the public interest and it's something that MPs really should, should be very, very concerned about.
4: I mean you you're right that they're they're terrified of the big media proprietors the politicians I mean and a, a good example of that was the whole you know the 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 battle for Rupert Murdoch's ear and his support which first of all New Labour um, carried out in the late 90s and then Cameron has successfully won his heart uh, more recently. But in a way it's sort of liberating a little bit um, for, the, for the government I think that they no, they no realise there's no, nothing they can do to win over Rupert Murdoch. He's lost to them now um, and it actually gives them a little bit more freedom and manoeuvre in relation to the press uh, but they're not yet taking it.
0: Jessica do you think they'll uh, use what might be the last few months of the Labour government to uh, um, impose some kind of uh, restriction on Press ownership.
3: I doubt it. I think that the concentration will be on trying to uh, win the debate on the economy. But I think another interesting aspect that she has been the public interest in um, the press over Trafigura. And actually, I do think that the more that the public gets involved in its own way through new media and Twitter and and the sort of social media online. Uh, you'll actually see maybe they'll take more interest in actually looking at which stories don't quite add up in the press. And it might be that, yes, we do need a new independent regulator, but maybe the public will start to feel as though they need to become the regulator first too.
0: Jessica, Seamus, many thanks for joining us. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Phil Maynard. I'm John Dennis, back for listening.